Welcome to Alt Swift X's A Cocker Bridged, a series where we read through the Game of Thrones books. We're up to the second book and the tenth chapter therein. Uh, it is called Davos One. This is the first chapter from the perspective of our our favorite Onion Knight, at least in the top three of all Onion Knights, Davos Seaworth. Um, so, it's been a little while. It's been a minute since we did an Alt Swift X Cocker Bridge episode. And uh, maybe this is a time to take things back to basics. There was a time around, like, halfway through the first book of this series when we started doing live streams instead of pre-recorded. Some people liked the talking with the chat and stuff. Some people hated it. And I think there's something in the idea that listening to the chat is distracting potentially so i think this time around we're gonna mostly i'm mostly gonna ignore the chat and all of your wonderfully helpful comments and uh mostly we're just gonna take things back to the to the to the to the streamlined focused purpose that defined this series you know just the complete and utter just just absolute oh we've already got technical difficulties um we will ignore you lazy bhikkhu um, but look, let's just get into it, because this show is not about tangents, this show is not about, about distraction, this show is about, is about, is about just intense, uh, direct, turgid literary analysis. That's what it's all about, so welcome all, and let's begin. Um, so... This line, this chapter, so so we're, we're near the start of this book, uh, a, a, a Clash of Kings, and this book differs from the first book in that we start with a lot of dark, magical energy. The first book introduced us to the characters, to Johnny Boy and Tyrion and Danny and the various political conflicts that began, and now we're starting to introduce some of the magical elements and some of these sort of secondary and tertiary kings that are involved, and the whole story starts getting a whole lot more complicated. I think this book is when Game of Thrones really sort of went off the rails, but like in a good way. Because remember, George Martin said that the Song of Ice and Fire was going to be a trilogy. He thought this would be done in three books and about six years. Um, Five books, and 21 years later, uh, there's still no end in sight. You know, I think like, we're only doing episodes about every uh, every six months. Uh, That's been our rate over the last six months um but i reckon if we continue at that rate we've still got a chance of of getting this whole series done before the winds of winter comes out but let's not get cynical let's continue and start with the first chapter the first line of this chapter which is the morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods what a line what a line uh, this, 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 this line is, is imbued, it is saturated, it is soaked with, with, with a sense of rising th- threat, of, uh, a threat of cataclysmic metaphysical change, disruption, eruption is threatened by this, the smoke of burning gods. Remember the uh, Winds of Winter preview chapter called The Forsaken, in which Aeron had a vision of like this throne with, with, with the rotting corpses of dead gods, and when Euron was talking about his apotheosis and how he'd become some kind of Lovecraftian king squid, like, like, like I think this is, is, is sowing those seeds, the smoke of burning 
in gods. This is a time of change and danger and risk and rise and fall and reward. And so, and and Stannis in this chapter is is trying to embrace these eldritch magical powers. Um, so he's hoping that he can he can use those powers and channel them to sweep sweep Stannis onto the Iron Throne. And spoiler, it's probably not going to work out that way for him because magic is a difficult thing to control. It's not like a it's not like it's not like one of your uh, p- 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 canals. What's, what's what's the canal that he cr- cuts across? Africa, the Panama Canal. It's not one of your neat little, you know, Venetian canals that you can just, you know, sweep your gondola along. Um, it, this is a this is a tidal wave of magical energy that's 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 rising and threatening to sweep across Westeros, and it's no easy thing to harness that magical energy without being swept along in a tide of salt and blood. Yeah. Welcome to Ultra of Dex. Okay, second line. We're up to the second line. They were all afire now, maid and mother, warrior and smith. So we're, we're listing off the, the gods of the seven, the, the Catholicism, the sort of um, standard popular religion in Game of Thrones. And... Um, and these these gods are burned. Stannis is sacrificing the gods of his of his people of his culture to embrace this foreign god, which doesn't always work out well when you do that. Trust me, I've tried like three times. Like in the sixties, I tried out Zoroastrianism, and that was um, ooh, it took weeks to get the stains out. Um, but we have these descriptions of the different gods. The the crone has has pearl eyes, which which you know is probably because of the cataracts. The crone is very old and elderly, and I suppose that the uh, the the eyes have started to get a little foggy, as they do. Um, the father has a builded beard and gilded beard, not a builded beard. And the stranger is carved to look more animal than human. Um, and of course, the stranger is the god of death in the Faith of the Seven. And so I think it's interesting that they that they look at death as something animal. I mean, think of like how our culture embodies death as like a grim reaper. You know, like death is embodied by a uh, as a spooky skeleton, a human form. Whereas here, the Faith of the Seven is embodying the stranger as an animal form, which you know has a certain logic to it, because um, death is something natural. It's something that visits not just humans, but all mammals and animals and life forms alike, except for those squids. I mean, those jellyfish. You know those jellyfish that are, like, immortal, and they just continue, like, spawning and cloning themselves and living on forever? That's a thing. Look it up. Um, but death comes for all, except for the jellyfish. <clears throat> Third sentence. <laughs> Uh, so we, we hear about the old dry wood and the countless layers of paint and varnish um, that, these, that these statues of the Seven uh, are formed of. The, 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 there's like years and years of worship that has gone into these uh, gods, so it's, it's no small thing to burn them. Um, they're almost like trees, aren't they, with their countless layers? If you cut them down, you could probably count the layers and see how old the god is, you know? If you want to know how old a god is, you just open up his mouth and, and look in the teeth. Uh, count the teeth of the god. Um, but don't look a gift god in the, in the mouth, because uh, then things get complicated. All right, no tangents. Um, so uh, heat rises, shimmering through the chill air, uh, and gargoyles and stone dragons are on the castle walls of Dragonstone. Um, gargoyles and, and stone dragons. We were introduced to those in in the prologue of this book. Dragonstone is covered in um, 
these, these, these monstrous gargoyles of lots of different creatures. And the stone dragons, of course, are, are supposedly going to be awoken into real living dragons at some point as part of the Azora High prophecy, or at least so Melisandre says. So the gargoyles and stone dragons, you know, they, 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 rec- they, they represent a sort of dormant magic that Melisandre and Stannis are trying to awake and harness. Uh, as uh, yeah, the the yeah, the book says as if the beasts were trembling and stirring. Uh, so these are these are powers that they're trying to awake. Um, and it is an ill thing, Allard declares. So Davos Seaworth has several sons. In the books, we only see one of Davos's sons, Mathos Seaworth. But there's also Allard and Dale and all these others. Um, and these guys are, are not too keen on the whole burning gods thing um and davos tells them to shut up because uh because well you don't you don't you don't you don't want to openly criticize when people are starting to get burny or you might be the next thing that melisandre decides to burn um davos says that his sons are good men but young and they're rash and uh, and Davos feels gratitude towards Stannis, uh, because Stannis Baratheon raised Davos to be a lord, uh, and he raised his sons to be you know knights and, and heirs to a to a castle and to give them give them prospects and prosperity, and that's something that they would never have had without Stannis, because um, of course Stannis because of course Davos's background is that he was a smuggler, and Davos forgave his smuggling because he uh, delivered onions to save Stannis uh, during the during the siege, um, and so he also decided to punish Davos by cutting off some of his fingers, so he rewarded him with lordship, but also took off his fingers, that's Stannis's idea of judgment, and Davos is is grateful to the person who, who cut off his fingers, which is one of those funny sort of twists of feudalism, that this servant who, you know, has to do whatever Stannis says, uh, has gratitude for, for the man who disfigured him, um, it's, it's, it's kind of perverse, I think, the way this feudalistic system makes people uh, blindly, blindly Kindly obedient to people who who commit violence against them. That's one of the sort of that we'll get we'll get into that. So hundreds of people have come to check out the burning of the gods because you would like it, like there's not a lot of entertainment in medieval times. There's no Netflix. There's not even Napster. These guys have to have to have to get their jollies where they can. And when there's a bunch of gods being burned on the beach, you have a beach party. Um, that's 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 the done thing. And the smell in the air is ugly. Yeah, it's hard not to feel uneasy at such an affront to the gods. So Stannis was never good at PR, he was never good at marketing. Stannis is trying to make himself a king who people want to follow, um, but he's not doing a great job of making himself loved in the way that Renly is, because by the laws of gods and men, Stannis should be the rightful heir to the throne, since he's Robert Baratheon's eldest surviving brother. Um, Renly uh, is the younger brother, but he's just decided that he's cool and pretty enough to be king instead of Stannis, so... Um, this shows, if nothing else, the importance of branding. Um, there's a reason why Steve Jobs is, you know, there's a reason why people know Steve Jobs's name and not Wozniak's name, you know, marketing. Uh, Morlin in the chat mentions Alt-Shift-X and Alt-Shift-X. Yeah, obviously Alt-Shift-X is the real deal, the real steal, um, as Donald Noy might say. Alt Shift X is uh, ain't shit. He's just he's just inflexible iron. That bloody Alt Shift X. What's he done? And yet Alt Shift X has all the bloody subscribers. Stunny. What what kind of justice is that? 
what justice is there in a world where where Alt Shift X has more subscribers than Alt Shift X? Alt Shift X never did a Super Mario Brothers three playthrough. Alt Shift X did almost the entirety of of Super Mario Brothers three in one live stream. Alt Shift X hasn't even been in the first level. So by by any objective metric, Alt Shift X is the superior channel. Um, but yeah, Alt Shift X is is pretty good too. All right, we're getting distracted. We're, we're still on the first page. Let's power through this. Uh, so Melisandre is conducting a ritual to sort of uh, uh, to 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 crown Stannis, to represent, acknowledge, to symbolically make Stannis Azora High, the fulfillment of this prophecy that Stannis will be the great hero and the leader who'll save the world. And Melisandre is sort of artificially recreating that legend, the legend of Azora High, in order to give, imbue Stannis with this sort of magical symbolic power. Um, and Melisandre walks around the fire, walks around the burning gods three times, speaking in three different languages. Um, and I think that sort of evokes the three attempted forgings of Lightbringer. Because remember that legend that Celador San tells us later about how Azor Ahai, the, the, the original hero back in the day, the way he created Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, is that he first uh, made a sword and, and put it out in water, and then he made a sword and stabbed a lion, but then finally he made a sword and stabbed his wife. And it was that third try uh, where, um, it was the third try where Azor Ahai was, was made, the number three. And so Melisandre walking and talking three times here is, I think, meant to evoke or connect to that uh, numerological symbolism, if you will. Um, it's also kind of like the walls of Karth, if you want to get even more sort of esoteric with your symbolism. In, in Karth, there are these three walls made of three different materials that protect the city of Karth, um, just as Melisandre walks three times in, in three different languages. Anyway, we're on the second page. Rip, roaring pace. Okay, page two. Um, Lord of Light, we offer you these false gods. Take them and cast your light upon us. The night is dark and full of terrors. It's interesting that, like, like I imagine there's sort of two ways you could play this. Like, like when you're casting down false gods, when you're w- w- when you're trying to displace one religion in favor of your own, as you do. This is practical advice, guys. So listen up. I think that you've got you've sort of got two options. You can either subs- you can either destroy that god and declare that god a false god and just and and wipe them out and replace them with your own god, or you can try and sort of subsume and 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 appropriate and assimilate that god and that religion into your own. Um, it's been done. Um, if I was smarter, I'd be able to give you some example. I mean, well, yeah, there's like pagan stuff. Like people always like to point out that like, you know, Christmas is, is a pagan festival that was swallowed by Christianity. Easter was a, was a pagan idea. Oh, look, I, I haven't got a PhD, but smart people told me this. Um, point is, it's possible for, for religions to sort of eat each other. Have you guys ever played, oh shit, what's that game, uh, something, uh, Agario? Or, or what, what's the game that the YouTubers play where, where you're like a snake or, or a worm and you eat other worms and you get a bigger worm or like, or like you're just a circle and you go around swallowing other circles uh, and, and, and every time it grows bigger. That's what, kind of what like religion is like and what like cultural artifacts are like, right? Like when you eat something, you get bigger and you and, and until that you're just this giant monotheistic blob that swallowed all of culture. Like uh, it's a little bit, yes, yeah, Slitherio. That's right, Yolak. Um, 
That's that's kind of what culture's doing right now, isn't it? Disney just ate Star Wars and ate Marvel, and soon enough Disney is going to be the giant monopoly that owns all culture. And if you want to tell a story, you got to tell you got to pay royalties to Walt. It's immensely depressing. Um, point is. What what I was trying to say is that maybe Melisandre could have said, hey, you know, the faith of the seven is really just the Lord of Light. I mean, lots of, you know, it's, it's very fashionable now to say that, that like, hey, all the gods are basically the same. Gods just mean love. Gods just mean light. And all the Abrahamic religions and all the other religions are just trying to, to give a name to good. And that name is God. That's sort of something that people say now. And Melisandre could have done the same, right? Mel- Mel- Melisandre could have said that, hey, the faith of the seven is just the Lord of Light. Uh, and by the way, Stannis is, you know, Hugo, Hugo of the Hill or whatever. Because that's the other thing. There actually is, like, stuff in the Game of Thrones lore that suggests that there actually are connections between the various religions. So, like, the sort of the Jesus of the Faith of the Seven is this character, Hugo of the Hill. And Hugo of the Hill had these seven stars that, that came down from the sky and, and, and came down onto Hugo's brow as a crown. Um, Hugo got the... The, the fire of the gods came down on high. A star came down from the sky down to earth, which sort of evokes the the, the red comet and like the imagery of, of the of the black stone of the bloodstone emperor, all sorts of theories about moon meteors. Which is sort of a, its whole other thing, but there is evidence in the books of of of, of interconnections in the law, which Melisandre maybe could have taken advantage of if she wanted to to use some better PR. But I digress. Um, so Stannis is watching this this whole this whole um, pageantry, this religious ceremony, this this thing that's going on, and Stannis watches impassively, his jaw hard as stone. Um, Stannis is always Im- Im- impassive. He's not a he's not a man of passions. He's always uh, talked about as having a, 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 a stone and grinding his teeth, and he's not he doesn't really enjoy anything. He just wants to do his duty, and I suppose his duty. Um, the pumpkin in chat asks, "What kind of donation does Alt Shrift X have?" Um, so there's there's the super chat on YouTube, but that's not very good because YouTube takes like a large chunk of the money. Uh, Streamlabs, if you do want to make a stream donation, use the Streamlabs donation, the stream donations link in the description, because that actually gives like 100% or most of the money. So if you do feel like throwing money, uh, use Streamlabs in the link below and don't use... uh, Super chats. Anyway, um, so Dragonstone Sept. So we talk about the history of these particular statues of the Faith of the Seven. So there is... So specifically, these statues were made from the wood that Aegon the Conqueror had in his ships. When Aegon the Conqueror, 300 years ago, came to conquer Westeros for the Targaryens, he turned the masts of his ships into these statues. So these these are 300 years old, and these have these have a lot of ancient religious significance. I mean, these are priceless historical religious artifacts. It's almost like... Um, it's almost like uh, the 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 you, you know how everyone claims to have like fragments of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. Like everyone with a little bit of tan bark is like, hey, this is this was from the cross of Jesus. And if you got together all of those scraps of wood, you'd you'd have enough to make like a hundred crucifixes. But the point is that these chunks of wood that that Melisandre and Stannis just burned, they, they're they are no ordinary statues. They are important. Um, and he's destroyed them, which is bad marketing. Um, 
so some of the lords of Westeros, some of the lords of Dragonstone and the and 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 the and the, and the surrounding area were uh, unhappy about the destruction of these priceless ancient religious artifacts. Um, so Sir Hubert Rampton and three of his sons went to try and defend their gods when when the queen's men, when Melisandre's men came and took the statues. But um, but some of the Ramptons were the Ramptons were imprisoned and Lord Gunther Sunglass. The mild and pious Gunser Sunglass was imprisoned for standing against this whole religious thing. Um, Crow Squared in the chat points out that the Taliban destroyed statues of Buddha in um, in what Iraq and Syria and those places. Yeah, this is like a real thing that happens in history a lot. People destroy each other's cultural heritage, and it's and it's fucking horrifying. Look up the pictures of the stuff destroyed in in Iraq and Syria recently. It's it's depressing. Um, and uh, just as in real life, uh, some people die to defend their cultural heritage. Um, and Davos thinks about his relationship to the gods. He says that eh, the gods don't really mean much to him. He did sometimes, you know, make offerings to the warrior or to the smith when, you know, he's doing this or that. But he's not a very devout man. Uh, I think it's interesting that Song of Ice and Fire does not have many religious point of view characters. Like, really, the only person who thinks a lot about religion is, is like, Aaron Dampere, who's, like, a frothing, deluded fanatic. Um, and, you know, there is also, like, you know, Ned Stark, who, you know, prays to the old gods, and you know, all the Stark kids have a certain amount of old gods flavor going on. Um, but there's, but there's not a lot of characters who like. Well, well, there aren't a lot of characters who believe in the faith of the seven um, in any meaningful way that we get to explore. Um, there, there isn't much exploration of the faith of the seven generally. Like we see all sorts of stuff about the magic of, yeah, the old gods, and yeah, Muhammad in the chat points out that Victarion is is religious with the um, with the drowned god. Yeah, I think that's a good point because he's one of the more moderate sort of. I mean, Victorian's not what you'd call a moderate person, but his belief... Well, no, he's pretty devout. Anyway, um, so they talk about the death of Maester Cresson, uh, because remember that in the prologue of this book, Maester Cresson talked against Melisandre and end up, ended up dying uh, from the poison that he tried to kill Melisandre with. Uh, and so it looked like uh, Maester Cresson was struck down by the Lord of Light for his impiety, because of course other people didn't know that Cresson was um, that Cresson was using poison. So, so I guess kind of ironically, Cresson's attempt to stop Melisandre and the Lord of Light actually kind of helped Melisandre and the Lord of Light, because Cresson's otherwise unexplained death made it look like the Lord of Light had real power, you know. And I think that sort of tr- that sort of clues us into the idea that Melisandre um, uses tricks just to demonstrate her power i mean you know it is true that melisandre magically survived crescent's poison and that and that and that means something she did magic there um but the fact that that crescent died uh was not a religious thing and yet people interpret it such so like that's consistent with melisandre's whole approach she uses a certain amount of like falsity and delusion and 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 self-deception in order to make it look like her god is this whole thing you know it's complicated it's like you know her glamours um, and her illusions, uh, her shadows, her light. It's all sort of about falsity. Um, all of the religion in this series. Anyway, so um, so Davos thinks about uh, how he'd like to kill Melisandre because he thinks he's such a bad, she's such a bad influence. But but he thinks, oh well, what chance would I have to kill Melisandre since you know Maester Cresson couldn't kill Melisandre, so how could I? And of course, I think Davos 
would be able to kill Melisandre. Um, I mean, he does try later on and fail, but like, but like, he thinks about you know Melisandre as like you know untouchable because of how magic she is. But really, like a good swing of a sword, I'm sure Davos could kill Melisandre. Like, you know, when we see things from her perspective, she's not some omnipotent magical being. Um, she, she 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 struggles to maintain the the amount of magic and illusion that she does. Um, so in a way, people's people's beliefs about Melisandre are her armor. The fact that people fear Melisandre's power is in itself more powerful than Melisandre's actual power, which is like what Varys says. You know, power is just a trick on a wall. It's 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 an illusion. Um, and Melisandre is is one of the preeminent weavers of those illusions. Uh, like 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 Job in Arrested Development. Um, okay, so Davos was only a smuggler. He's a very humble man. He doesn't think much of his own abilities, even though he does have a great influence in the in the in what happens in Westeros. And Davos thinks that the burning gods cast a pretty light, red and orange and yellow. Um, and and Melisandre says that the beauty of the statues will make them more pleasing to R'hllor, which is such a crazy, like like, perverse view of of the world when like you you destroy things of value because you believe that the afterlife and the gods have have more use for them uh it's like how you know the egyptians you know would would, would put all these goods and all this food and, and money and, and living slaves they would they would lock them all up in their pyramids uh to give to the dead pharaohs in the afterlife you know and it's and it's such a horrible terrible waste to you know, to give beautiful things to the dead because uh, you know spoiler the dead don't need them especially not in a society where there's you know slaves um but that's just one of the wild things about belief in it um so we we have a description of like how this ceremony came to be so so the mother the statue of of the mother has been stabbed with a long sword thrust through her heart the book says and the and and the sword is alive with flame um so here, Melisandre is recreating this this myth about Nissa Nissa and Azor Ahai, because supposedly the original hero, Azor Ahai, stabbed his beloved wife Nissa Nissa with a sword, and that's what made the sword Lightbringer, the sword that saved the world. So... Uh, so 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 she's trying to make Stannis play the role of Azor Ahai. She's sacrificing uh, the the gods of the Seven, just as Azor Ahai sacrificed Nissa Nissa, um, and the lords and and all the people watch on at this display. Uh, and Lord Keltegar coughed uh, into a into a handkerchief that is embroidered with red crabs because the because the uh the 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 people of Westeros do love their sigils. Uh I like how characters from Essos make fun of the Westerosi obsession with their sigils because it is pretty silly to cover your handkerchief in red crabs, I would think. The last thing you want to blow your nose into is a crab and trust me, I've tried. Um and the 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 Lord Valerion has the blood of ancient Valyria. The Valerions have, you know, Valyrian and Targaryen blood in them. Possible that some of them could ride dragons. Um, meanwhile, Davos Seaworth stinks of fish and onions. So Davos is apart from the other lords. He's 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 he was common born, and so even though he's like a lord in name, he's not really accepted into the noble class. Um, 
he feels set apart. Um, but his sons, uh, his sons don't have the experience of, of of being common so much as Davos does. So they're a little prouder, and he thinks that maybe one day in the future his sons might get to wed with with people like Lord Valyrion's children, um, and his little black ship. His little sigil might fly as high as the Valyrian seahorse or Keltigar's red crabs. So Davos is hoping that his his line and his children will rise up uh, in through the system of nobility and become as powerful as as some of the others are. Which which I think is kind of depressing. Like you know you know how like in 1984 like you know the 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 protagonist learns to love Big Brother. Like he exists in an oppressive system, uh, and it ends with him embracing that oppression system instead of, you know, fighting against it. It's like that uh, Black Mirror episode, One Million Merits, where the protagonist tries to fight against the oppressive system, but he just ends up being assimilated into it. Um, That's kind of what's happening with Davos. You know, Davos was a common man um, who was, you know, fucked over by by the aristocracy and the feudal system, just like everyone was to whatever extent. Um, But he's just been subsumed into it. He's been made a lord and he's just towing the line and he's just been being obedient, uh, and his sons are going to become part of the system. So, you know, he was a smuggler, he was a criminal, he was outside the system, but now he's just being swallowed up by the system. And I think there is something incredibly depressing about that. Everything I am, I owe to him, Davos says. Uh, he's he's got this sort of slavish devotion to Stannis, and you know he he admires Stannis for you know semi good reasons. Stannis is this sort of you know honest, just man uh, for all the good that does him. Um, but I still yeah I still think there's something sad about about Davos's extreme loyalty. Um, I also think it's interesting that you know Davos, as part of being made a lord, uh, he he no longer uses his smuggler's skiff, and instead he uses a war galley, which is kind of like that idea of people rise to their to their level of incompetence um like they've done like studies on like corporate structure and like offices and stuff where you know when when someone's good at their job they get promoted to a different job and if they're good at that job they get promoted to a different job which just means that no one stays in a job that they're good at they keep moving up until they come to something that they're not good at um and it seems like that's kind of what happened to step to davos davos was a really good smuggler so they made him a lord and it remains to be seen if davos is that much of a good lord uh davos thinks about his family he's got a wife called maya who's the mistress of a small keep on cape wrath it's a little bit sad that in the end of uh, game of thrones the tv show that davos never went back to his wife davos stayed in king's landing davos doesn't talk about his wife very much in the show but in the books uh he does love her um and uh yeah and it's a nice little home that he's got in a place called cape wrath and there are and there's a nice little keep where where Maya lives, and there and there are woods where they can hunt deer. And there's this whole sort of whole, sort of nostalgia for home. It would be nice to see Davos returning home. Um, and Stannis thinks about how loyal he is to to Stav- da- Davos. Thinks of how loyal he is to Stannis, and he thinks a lot about luck which is interesting. Davos doesn't rely much on the gods, but he does think a lot about luck, because in in a little leather pouch around his neck, he keeps his finger bones that were cut off by Stannis. Uh, His fingers are his luck, he thinks, and he needs luck. And indeed, Davos does have some pretty good luck in the end, because in the Battle of the Blackwater, when everything blows the fuck up, Davos survives, and he's saved from shipwreck. So maybe maybe, maybe Davos' luck, there is something in that. 
Dark smoke rises from the burning gods. And this is, of course, on the beach. So what we see here is smoke and salt, just like in the prophecy of Azorahai being born amidst smoke and salt. So Melisandre is, I think, consciously recreating the prophecy as, as, though, as though that's how it works, you know? As though you get a prediction of the future and, and therefore you try to make that prediction come true, you know? Maybe that's how all prophecies work. Prophecies don't come true because they are legitimate visions of the future. They come true because people try to make them true, you know? Um, so Melisandre is robed in scarlet satin and blood velvet. Her eyes are red and there's that great ruby glistening at her throat. So in the TV show, we had this revelation that Melisandre is, is hundreds of years old and that the ruby at her throat is artificially making her look younger. Um... I wonder if that's true of the books. Melisandre does use glamour magic to disguise Man's Raider as the Lord of Bones. Maybe Melisandre is, is disguising herself in the books as well. Um, and so Melisandre... Uh, states part of the prophecy of Azora High. She says, There will come a day when the stars bleed, and a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword. Uh, the bleeding star could be the red comet that we've seen at the start of this book, um, and the warrior burning from, from the fire, drawing from the fire a burning sword. And, you know, combining that with the idea of Azora High and Nissa Nissa, um, this could definitely, definitely connect with the idea of Jon Snow stabbing Daenerys Targaryen, right? Like, people for a very long time have wondered if John might have to sacrifice Daenerys to become Azor Ahai and to get the sword Lightbringer, um, just like Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa. Um, and the show did not do that exactly. Um, we didn't really get Lightbringer. We didn't really get Azor Ahai in the TV show. Um, but John did stab Daenerys, and I don't think that's something that the show made up for their own purposes. Um, so maybe it's possible that in the books, John will sacrifice Daenerys before the defeat of the White Walkers and there'll be some kind of magic and prophecy happening in the books. Or maybe something a bit different will happen. Maybe John will execute Melisandre and that Melisandre's fire will go into the sword or something like that. There's a lot of possibilities. Um... And uh, Melisandre declares Stannis Azor Ahai. And yeah, spoiler, that probably won't work out. Stannis strides forward like a soldier marching into battle, which is really how he approaches everything. Um, Stannis, is, Stannis is joyless. He is dutiful. He just, he just, he, he does everything not because he wants to, but because he feels that he has to, which is not strictly true, is it? Like, like, Stannis doesn't have to make himself, like, fight his war to, to, to win the Iron Throne. He doesn't have to, you know, draw Lightbringer from the fire. He could just take a boat down to Narth and have a party with the butterflies or something. I think that people who tell themselves that they have to do this and they have to do that, I mean, you know, there are, there are some things you have to do to survive, I suppose. But I think, I think that mentality of saying that, you know, this is my duty, I'm obligated to do this or that, I think it sometimes comes out of a fear of having to take responsibility for your own freedom and choices. Like, it's scary to have to choose between lots of different things, and it can be less scary to think that, well, I've only got one option, I have to do X, because that person said so, or that obligation exists, or that person expects that of that. And I think sometimes you can have this revelation of realising that, oh, these responsibilities and obligations, they're only really as real as I believe in them. And, and, and there are plenty of obligations to choose from, right, depending on who you listen to. You can follow, you can follow 
follow, you know, family or nation or religion or work or all sorts of different things. And I think when you realize that none of those, that, 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 that all of those influences are arbitrary, you, you realize you have a freedom to do what you want. And that can be terrifying because when you have freedom, the, the consequences of your decision are, are yours. When you're, when you're just doing what you have to do, when you're just following your duty and following your obligations, it's not really your fault what the outcomes of your actions are, right? Because you can just accept that, oh, well, I had to do that. So that was the only outcome possible. Freedom is scary because you have to choose and you have to accept the consequences of your actions. And, you know, that's an extended unnecessary psychoanalysis of Stannis Baratheon. Tune in next time for our favorite segment, un- Unnecessary Psychoanalysis of Stannis Baratheon. Um, and Stannis has a long padded glove when he reaches and draws the burning sword from the fire. Um, and they put a, a, a cloak around him to, you know, keep the flames off. And um, and later they have to, like, pad off some of the burning embers from his clothes. And, and, and I think what this sort of raises is the idea that, like, you know... It's all well and good to have, like, a legend about, like, oh, you know, gods and fire and the burning blood and the waving sword. But, like, when you actually when, when, when you actually think about the practical, pragmatic requirements of something like a burning sword, you have to think that, like, oh, hang on, that's not very practical. A burning sword would set things on fire. It would be very hot. It would be a tad warm on, on, on your fingies. Um thinking about the practical ramifications of all this prophecy and magic what does it actually look like it like to 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 draw a burning sword from the fire you know what does it really look like to drive back the darkness with the light it's going to be really interesting in the final books to see what the reality look like it, will will it be fantastical and cartoonish or will it be you know gritty and grimy and and bloody and awkward it's it's not just dark, it's awkward to do this magic stuff, you know, conquering conquering old town with a with a giant squid, you know, as Euron seems to be wanting to do. What does that actually look like? Probably just awkward and difficult and and inconvenient, you know? So all fantasy is sort of riding that line, I think, of 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 romanticizing and fantasizing versus like reality and just realism and pragmatism. Um, and and the so- and the king plunges into the fire with his teeth clenched, um, which which is also uh, how he had sex with with Melisandre when he does that later on. He he plunges into the fire with his teeth clenched, and I'm not just being uh, I'm not. I'm not just being crude here. Like the whole stabbing the sword into Nissa Nissa with 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 the fire. Um, that absolutely is like like symbolically connected to sex. The idea of um, penetrating something and 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 ooh, damaging something. I mean that's symbolically uh, loaded. But but the point of like 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 committing that kind of an act in order to create something new you only birth something new through 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 a violent process there's a violence in sex that martin's trying to evoke here and that's what's that's that that that's that's where power comes from in this sort of symbolism when stannis has sex with melisandre to birth the shadow baby when azor Ahai stabs nissa nissa to birth lightbringer when rhaegar kills Lyanna Stark to birth Jon Snow. Like, it's that same sort of symbolic pattern over and over. When, when the Bloodstone Emperor kills the Amethyst Empress um, to, to create, you know, the Long Night or whatever, you know? Like, like there's all this repetition which you can, which you can interpret in lots of different ways. 
Anyway, um, yeah, and, and, and Stannis draws the sword from the fire with a single hard jerk, um, uh, which, 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 which was my nickname in, in grade school, actually. Um, and there are jade green flames and there's cherry red steel, and this is a very colorful, evocative description of the magic. Um, a sword of fire shouts Queen Solis, and all the men, the Queen's men, take up the cry. A sword of fire, it burns, it burns, a sword of fire. It's almost like a Greek chorus. Do you think that do you think that Solis and the Queen's men rehearsed this 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 pageant before it happened? Do you think they said, Alright, so Stannis is gonna pour the sword out, then you guys are gonna shout, the sword, the sword is all high. Because let let me tell you, these things don't always work out organically. When you when you try and have an entirely spontaneous religious ceremony uh man communion wine gets spilled naked virgins get get uh twist their ankles it's it's a whole disaster you've really got to think about blocking you've got to think about stagecraft when you when you're conducting this sort of a ceremony cults ain't easy friends um and melisandre says a sign was promised and now a sign is seen behold azora high uh, and the word promised, you know, connects uh, the, the terminology of Azora High to the terminology of the prince that was promised. There is controversy in, in, in amongst the fandom about, you know, how connected are the concepts of Azora High and the prince that was promised. Because Melisandre uses both the terms Azora High and the prince that was promised to describe Stannis and, and the smoke and the salt and so on. Um, so it seems as though the prophecies are, if not the same, at least closely related. But there are some people who dispute that. Um, I think they're two different sort of cultural windows on the same idea, basically. Um, and yeah, Stannis sort of sets himself on fire a little bit, so he has to <laughs> has to deal with, with that. So, you know, again, there are sort of practical issues with, with magic. Um, and Davos thinks about, you know, is this whole burning gods thing a good idea? Um, and the gods on the pyre are scarcely recognizable anymore. The head falls off the smith, and there's something like sad and pathetic and wrong. It's like it's like it's like corpses after some war crime, some massacre, some atrocity. They have destroyed something on the beach this morning, um, and and the flames of the sword are dwindling and dying because Stannis put it out in the beach. So what have they even gained from this sacrifice? Have they really gained power? Is this really Lightbringer? Is Stannis really as or a high spoiler probably not davos thinks that the red sword of heroes looks a proper mess um so uh, davos thinks about how he needs stannis because stannis was the one who made davos a lord stannis is davos's patron uh, and if stannis goes down so does davos's power and importantly so does davos's son's power and positions um so da- davos is not loyal to stannis only out of like you know um uh, being being happy about it he is um he is he has self-interested reasons to being loyal to Stannis, because if Stannis falls, so does he, and so does his sons. He's trying to secure the legacy and the safety of his family. Hassan Wilson in the chat says that the defacing of false gods is hardly a crime, which is an interesting statement. Like, is it wrong to insult a god if a god doesn't exist? I think the answer is that, like, the people who care about that god uh, are gonna have a hard time if you destroy their god. Uh, but obviously, you know, to what extent people have rights to defend their gods is, you know, how far do those rights go is a real 
and difficult conversation, I suppose. Um, but you know, if you're only if you if you're only worried about defacing false gods, um, every god is every god is going to be defaced by someone. Because I don't know if y'all are aware, but there is some disagreement in religious circles over which gods are the false ones and which ones aren't. I know, actually, I've got a cheat sheet. I could tell you right now which gods are real and which ones aren't, but uh, it's not going to make anyone happy if I told you. Um, so there are the Queensmen and there are the not Queensmen. The Queensmen are the people who support, uh, who support Selyse and Melisandre. They, they believe, they, they have, uh, openly supported the Lord of Light and R'hllor, um, and they've gained a certain amount of political power by doing so, by, by cozying up to Queen Selyse, uh, and other people are less loyal to Selyse and Melisandre. Um, and... The sons of Davos chat with him, and the sons again express that they're not so sure about all this R'hllor stuff. Um, and and Dale uh, Dale suggests that Davos should be more proud uh, of his lordship. Um, he's encouraging he's encouraging him to be more more assertive about his power. But Davos says, "Nah, you know, we shouldn't question Stannis. We just do his bidding. We are obedient." Um, so there's sort of this intergenerational. Um, thing going on between between Davos's sons, who are a bit more bullshit than he is, um, and they talk about the names of the various ships because after the ceremony is over, uh, Davos goes down to the docks and checks out some of the ships, and everyone shuffles off to go about their day. Um, and yeah, oh, and there's there's this interesting symbolism. Like Davos thinks Davos's sigil, House Seaworth, has a black ship and a onion on it because that references the smuggling ship where where Davos smuggled onions into Storm's End during that siege. Um, and to Davos, the tall black ship represents like the pride and the power of House Seaworth, while the onion represents the humility and their roots as like small folk. And Davos thinks that you know his sons they see the tall black ship, but they don't see the onion. They're not humble enough. Um, and they talk about the port, uh, and they mention how on this island of Dragonstone, there are no prostitutes. There are soldiers looking for prostitutes, but they don't find any because Stannis permits no whores on his island. And you could do a whole other psychoanalytic little tangent about Stannis's attitudes towards sex. Spoiler, when you see sex as an obligation, it's not a lot of fun. Well, well, that depends, actually. It well, it depends on your perspective. But look, they talk about the names of all the different ships. Uh, there's a ship called Fury and Lord Stefan and Stag of the Sea and Pride of Driftmark and Red Claw and Swordfish and Black Betha and Wraith and Lady Maya. The, these are the sorts of things that get cut from the Game of Thrones show. And you know, I don't begrudge this particular omission. Um, that's omission, not emission. We're not talking about... Baylor Breakwind here. Man, that's a deep cut reference. Um, anyway, so uh, there are all these different ship names, and uh, Davos has a thirst, so he goes to the local bar, and there's a there's a gargoyle outside, uh, a very waist uh, a waist high eroded gargoyle where you can barely see the features. And he, and Davos is an old friend with this gargoyle, so he pats the gargoyle's head for luck. Uh, and, and and the gargoyle is waist high, and he pats his head for luck, which sort of connects to that idea of rubbing a dwarf's head. Um, rubbing a dwarf's head is is lucky, which they do in Game of Thrones Season 5 with Tyrion, which is kind of funny. Why are short people lucky? I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with the children of the forest. Um, and 
Salador San is an old friend of Davos. He's a pirate, a Lysene pirate, um, and he's known for his flamboyance. He wears ridiculous rich clothes. He's got daggered sleeves that pull down onto the floor. So, like, you know how wizards' robes have, like, those long-hanging sleeves? Salador's sleeves go all the way down to the ground, so you know he's a rich bitch. He's also got a jaunty green cap, because if, because if you're going to have a green cap, it might as well be jaunty. Um, and Salador-san is eating grapes and having a nice time. This guy reminds me of, like, Hedonism Bot from, from Futurama. He, he basically seems to exist to have a good time. Um, he, he's a banker and a smuggler and a pirate, and he calls himself the Prince of the Narrow Sea. Um, and Davos had recruited Salador-san uh, to support Stannis, of course, for gold. Um, was the stream down for a second or something? Yeah, apparently we, we dropped the stream for a second. Well, you might have missed something, but we were just talking about Salador San and his jaunty green cap. Um, and Salador San does not have a lot of interest in the, uh, in the God-burning episode that just happened. He, he didn't, he, he doesn't regret missing that particular ceremony, because he says that back on lease... There's a great temple uh, to to R'hllor where the red priests are always burning this and burning that, and he and he, and he's bored by it. I mean, I tell you, you see one Eldritch burning ceremony, you've seen them all. Um, so so Davos is not too interested in all of that, um, and he just talks about his ships and he and he says, "Hey, have some grapes, Davos. Eat some grapes. They're delicious." And and I think these grapes are a lot like Renly's peach. There's a there's a chapter later on where Renly tries to get his brother to eat a peach because he's like, "Hey." You know, this this shit's delicious. Life is fun. Like, smell the roses. Have a good time. Bang the night of flowers. Like, there are joys to be had in this world, brother. Like, like get into it. Um, uh, because Stannis is not someone who knows how to enjoy life. Um, and Salador San is, is similar. He's, he's someone who knows how to enjoy life, and he's trying to get Davos to stop and smell the grapes or eat the roses or whatever you prefer. Um, and Davos says, no, I'm not here for grapes. I need ale and I need news in that order. And, and Salador San's like, nah, nah, slow down. He who hurries through life hurries to his grave. Uh, which, you know, is not always true. I mean, if you eat too many grapes, you can you can diabetes your way right into the grave. So I, I'd say that, you know, a, a, a moderate speed is what you want when you're walking towards the grave. You want to amble to the grave, you know, just just you, you, at a decent pace. You don't want to... Not, not glacial. Anyway, um, so... Salador relates to Davos that Tyrion Lannister, the dwarf, has been sent to, to see to King's Landing, um, and, he ch- and he got rid of Janos Slint, and he replaced him with this new tough guy, uh, what's his name, Bywater, whoever it is, to rule the Gold Cloaks, to, to lead the, the Gold Cloaks. Um, and it's always funny seeing, like, you know, an outsider's perspective on uh, things that are going on in other storylines. <clears throat> Because uh, people often have like a twisted or inaccurate perspective on what's going on in other parts of Westeros. And a serving girl, a waitress, walks through the bar, swatting at the hands that grope her as she passes. Um, and Stellador San talks about how he hopes that when they conquer King's Landing for Stannis, he hopes that Stannis will make a gift of the beautiful Queen Cersei to warm his bed. Uh, so this is talking. This is this is illustrating how terrible this society is for women. Uh, rape 
rape and sexual harassment is just part of the deal in this feudalistic society. And it's also a bad world for dwarfs, uh, because Salador-san says that, hey, when we conquer King's Landing, we can make Tyrion dance for our entertainment, and we can make him sing a song, and uh, he's a silly fucking dwarf. Um, so we're, we're seeing, you know, like Davos as a common man is often a window through which we see like the inequalities and the shittiness of this feudalistic society. There's a long list of classes of people who are, uh, uh, have a shitty time in various ways and women and dwarves are among them. Um, so Salador talks about the war and he want, he's pretty eager to attack King's Landing because he reckons he can win. Uh, and he's in it for the gold, of course. He's a pirate. He's, he's fighting for Stannis, not out of loyalty, but for money. Um, and he only, and he's not getting paid in advance. He's getting paid after the fact, which he's not too happy with. He's only getting promises. It is gold that Salador craves, not words on papers. And of course, Salador in the book still hasn't been paid. As of the fifth book, uh, Stannis' on, attack on King's Landing has failed, he went up to the wall, and Salador ultimately fucks off because he thought he wasn't going to get his money, which is a real shame. It sort of parallels Bronn's storyline in Game of Thrones Season 8. Bronn does get paid handsomely in the end. I wonder if Salador San will ever get paid, because he loses like a bunch of his fleet, so... Um, but yeah, Davos promises, you will have your gold. No man in the Seven Kingdoms is more honorable than Stannis Baratheon. And Davos reflects that the world is twisted beyond hope when lowborn smugglers must vouch for the honor of kings. So that speaks to just the fundamental dysfunction and corruption of this feudalistic system. Because as it turns out, you know, being a king doesn't really mean all that much necessarily. And being lowborn, you know, the lowborn are sometimes more honest and, and real and reliable than the kings. Um, so... That just speaks to how fucked up this society is. Like, why should there be people who are more, you know, privileged and empowered than everyone else if they are, you know, in practice, no greater than the small folk? Hey, guys, maybe you should invent this thing called human rights and equality. That'd be cool. Um, just a suggestion. Um, so they talk about how, whether they could take over King's Landing. Salador is confident. Davos is a bit doubtful. One of the issues is that Stannis's younger brother, Renly, has decided that he wants to be king. Um, and everyone's a bit confused by the situation, what with Renly being a king and Stannis being a king and Joffrey being a king and Rob being a king. It's a little bit like in Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 1, when people were like, hey, who's in charge here? Queen Daenerys or Lady Sansa or King Jon? What the fuck's going on? That kind of instability creates a bit of political cognitive dissonance and it's dangerous. Um... So, yes, yeah, so many kings, my tongue grows weary of the word, Salador says. Uh, and uh, Renly is bringing his wife Marjorie to war. Uh, he, and uh, Salador speculates that maybe Renly is loath to part with his, quote, warm burrow between her thighs. Um, and, you know, of course we know the truth that, uh, that that Renly is less interested in Marjorie's warm burrow and rather more interested in, in Loras's warm burrow. Uh, gods forgive me. Um, and Salador doesn't like Stannis because Stannis is always frowning at Salador because, of course, you know, Salador is this hedonist and Stannis is this is this dutiful, ascetic, ascetic. He, Stannis doesn't like fun. 
and Salador does, so they don't get along. Uh, and Salador wonders if Stannis would like him better if he wore hair shirts and never smiled. Um, and, and Salador says an interesting thing. You know, I am an honest man. He must suffer me in silk and samite. And that's kind of like a funny similarity uh, between Salador and Stannis. Because, you know, one of, one of Stannis' things, like he says later, that, you know, I'll only speak the truth. I won't say that Robert is my beloved brother because I don't love him. It's a lie. I won't lie. And here, Salador is kind of saying the same thing. Salador's not going to wear a hair shirt and never smile. He's going to wear silks and Samites because he's honest about who he is. And who he is is a flamboyant, hedonistic guy. So, like, even though Salador and Stannis are opposites, they have a similarity in in that they are unashamedly committed to expressing who they are. Salador is honest and upfront about his hedonism. Stannis is honest and upfront about his about his whatever. Glidus Glidus in the chat says uh, that Salador should say that's not me because that's what Arya does in in season eight and season one and every fucking episode of, of the Game of Thrones TV show. That's not me. I'm not a lady. I'm a tomboy. Arya is is honest and and upfront about her identity. At least she is after she throws off the the fakery and the illusion of of the faceless men and their whole dehumanizing, depersonalizing thing. But that's another tangent. Um, So Salador-san, the pirate, the liar, the banker, the, 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 the lord of the narrow sea, he is an honest man. And this honest man tells another truth. He says that that sword was not Lightbringer. That whole charade that Melisandre and Stannis just did, the whole ceremony to make Stannis' aura high, it's not real, because that sword was not Lightbringer. And and, and Salador tells the story of the real Lightbringer, the real magic and how it came to be. And so he tells the story about how Azora High, the original hero, thousands of years ago, during the first long night, presumably. Uh, he forged Lightbringer, and he made a sword, and he worked for days and nights, and then he tempered the, the the steel in water, and then the sword broke. And then he made another sword, and he worked for 50 days and 50 nights, and he made this great sword, and he stabbed it in a lion, and he tempered the sword in, in the red heart of a beast, but the sword shattered. And then finally, uh, he made a third sword, and he tempered it in the heart of the woman he loved. He killed his wife, Nissa Nissa, And she gave a cry of anguish and ecstasy that left a crack across the face of the moon. And her strength and her courage and her soul went into the sword. And that is how Lightbringer was made and the the world was saved. Um, So there's a lot to unpack there. Symbolically, I mean, the basic point that Salador is saying is that is that making Lightbringer, making magic and, and prophecy for real, it involves terrible sacrifice. It involves death. It involves blood. It's fucked up. So be glad that 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 that's not the real Lightbringer, because fire burns and too much light can hurt the eyes. Real magic takes take, has a cost. Um and one of the interpretations you can make of, of what this story of the three temperings means is that, hey, maybe uh, maybe the three attempts is, is, is repeated by Rhaegar Targaryen. Rhaegar Targaryen uh, made several attempts to create Azor Ahai, or Lightbringer. Um, he first believed that he himself was Azor Ahai. Uh, but Rhaegar ended up dying in the waters of the Trident when he was broken by Robert Baratheon. He he shattered in water, just like the first sword of Azor Ahai. Rhaegar 
later believed that, not uh, not after his death, but after he believed that he was Azor Ahai, Rhaegar believed that his son Aegon was Azor Ahai. Uh, but Aegon, young Griff, well, not young Griff, but, but, but the son of Rhaegar, Aegon, ended up getting killed by House Lannister, by, you know, Gregor Clegane, technically, but under the orders of Tywin Lannister, just like the second sword shatters in the heart of a lion, like the Lannister lion. And then third, Rhaegar Targaryen thought that some other kid is uh, Azor Ahai, possibly, because when Rhaegar ran off with Lyanna, it seemed as though he was trying to fulfill the prophecy of Azor Ahai. Uh, there must be one more, he said. So maybe Jon Snow is this third attempt of creating Azor Ahai. When Rhaegar thrust his sword, penis, into Lyanna Stark, uh, that sex created Jon Snow, and maybe Jon Snow is the real Azor Ahai, or the real Lightbringer, perhaps, more, more, more rightly. Um, and, uh, and so maybe that's, that, that's what this whole three, three temperings means. There's a lot of different possible interpretations of that. I think that's probably the most plausible one. It may be that there's no like direct parallel to what the three temperings mean. Um, but there is another aspect to this story that I think is important, and that's that Nissa cry of anguish left a crack across the face of the moon, and that and that crack in the moon is connected to the creation of Lightbringer and the fire of Lightbringer. Um, and that connects to the story of how dragons were born that's related in the first book and in the first season. Uh, it's said, uh, I think it was uh, one of the handmaidens, Daria, of, uh, D- Daria said that a trader in Karth told her that a... That that one day there were two moons in the sky. Originally there were two moons, but then there were, but then the moon wandered too close to the fire of the sun, and then it cracked, and then the dragons and and the fiery dragons emerged from the cracked moon. And that idea of fire emerging from a cracked moon is is echoed in Nissa Nissa leaving a crack in the moon and birthing the fiery Lightbringer. So that's this whole thing. Like go check out like some of Lucifer Means Lightbringer's analysis to learn more about some of that stuff. But um, that that's this other sort of repeating thing, like this destructive or penetrative or sexual act creating this fiery energy at great cost. Um, and maybe that's something that'll be replicated when Jon Snow perhaps kills Daenerys and draws a sword from her fire or something along those lines. Um, and yeah, so Salador San's just arguing that... Oh, oh yeah, and another parallel to that whole thing is the Bloodstone Emperor. There's stuff in the in uh, the World of Ice and Fire world book talking about how the Long Night started, apparently, when the Bloodstone Emperor sacrificed or killed his his sister, the Amethyst Empress. Um, and there was this black stone that came from the sky and this ushered in the Long Night. And that sort of raises the question of, hey, is Azor Ahai even a good guy? Or is Azor Ahai a villain? Does Azor Ahai unleash this 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 good heroic world saving fire, or does Azor Ahai usher in uh, some sort of dark power? Euron Greyjoy seems to be playing the role of like a Bloodstone Emperor in how he ushers in darkness by making great sacrifice, and maybe that's sort of what Azor Ahai is about. Um, fire burns, Salador says. Maybe Azor Ahai and Lightbringer are dangerous and bad. Depends on perspective. It's probably a bit of good and a bit of bad. Uh, so Davos says that King Stannis is my god, which is an interesting sort of a god to have. Uh, pretty demanding god is King Stannis. Um, and then we get a food description. Minced lamb and pepper and roasted gull with mushrooms and fennel and onion. Because every Game of Thrones chapter has to have a food 
description. Um, and we talk about how Salador San says that, hey, those those gods of the Faith of the Seven, they should have just been given to me because they were too beautiful to burn. Um, I could have I could have sold them or something. Uh, so Salador San is is irreverent and selfish. Um, and Davos Seaworth thinks about Thoros of Mir, who used to wield a flaming sword in tourneys. Uh, and he thinks about how there was no magic in that sword. It was just covered in wildfire. Um, so... So Thoros is, um, that, that, that illustrates how, you know, magic is sometimes not real. Uh, a true sort of fire, that would be a wonder to behold, and yet at such a cost. So they're emphasizing over and over the idea that magic and prophecy, it comes out of sacrifice and terrible cost. Uh, and, and Davos thinks about his own wife, Maya, and how she's the best woman in the world, and how he would be unable to sacrifice her. If that's the price of a magic sword, it's more than he cares to pay. And so this, like, like explicit idea of Davos thinking, hey, I wouldn't want to sacrifice my wife, you know, that, that does sort of of lend some weight to the idea of, hey, you know, maybe John will have to sacrifice his beloved Daenerys for magical reasons. Um, and yeah, Davos just thinks luck when he pats the gargoyle's head on the way out of the bar. Um, and then uh, Devon, uh, Davos's son Devon, Devon comes along and says he needs to go and meet with Stannis, um, and he's worried that Stannis is going to want to sail on, on King's Landing because Davos isn't so sure that they would win. He thinks there is no hope of victory because the, because their, their navy, their soldiers are just too few. Um, and on his way up to the uh, uh, up to the castle, uh, Axel Florent, one of the most preeminent of the Queen's men, chats with Davos, and he has coarse hair that sprouts from his ears, but that does not stop him from hearing most of what happens in the castle. Um, and, uh, and Axel says some pious things about the Lord of Light, and Davos is sort of non-committal. And Axel says that R'hllor sometimes permits his faithful servants to glimpse the future in flames. And Axel says that I saw dancers and fiery, fiery fire dancing around, and I think that's going to be the victory that Stannis gets after we attack King's Landing. And Davos says, I only saw fire. And that itself is kind of a premonition of what does end up happening at the Blackwater, which is Tyrion blowing up Stannis' navy in fire. Patchface also has some sort of vision of fire in the future, which could definitely connect to to the defeat on the Blackwater. Um, and they go into the painted table room in Dragonstone, um, and Stannis tells Davos to read some stuff, but Davos is illiterate, he can't read because Shireen hasn't told him yet, um, and Stannis, Stannis's brows are furrowed with irritation. Stannis is all furrows, his furrows all the way down is Stannis, and Stannis has written a letter. And he sent the letters all over Westeros, and he says that uh, Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella are abominations born of incest. They are not really uh, Robert Baratheon's children, they are actually Jaime and Cersei's children, and therefore Stannis lays claim on the Iron Throne. Um, and Stannis notes that, that Jaime, even though he is an incestuous kingkiller, he is a knight. So call him Sir Jamie. Whatever else the man may be, he remains a knight. And also, don't call Robert my, Robert my beloved brother because I don't love him. Uh, it's a lie. Take it out.
And so, you know, this is not only Stannis being sort of like, you know, rigid and honest. It's also Stannis being very resentful. Um, Stannis is very, very disgruntled and frustrated and resentful about all the things he feels were deprived of him, such, such as, you know, being sent to Dragonstone instead of Storm's End. You know, Stannis isn't just doing things out of duty. He also kind of hates everyone because he feels mistreated. So Stannis is not simply, you know, going by the book. He has a lot of feelings that are that are driving him. Um, and so Stannis is sending this letter about the incest, hundreds of letters all over the all over the realm, because this is what you did before Twitter. Before you had the Twitter bird, you had to use your raven birds to send the letters around. Um, and Max, Maximiliano in the chat says that it would have been a lot more helpful for Stannis to have done this before Ned was killed in revealing this secret. And true, if Stannis had collaborated with Ned, Ned, uh, book one might have gone very differently, eh? Um, so, Stannis complains that, oh, all the lords love Joffrey or Renly or Rob, they don't love me, even though I am the rightful king, and, you know, of course, maybe if Stannis had better PR and worded his letters more carefully and didn't burn everyone's favourite gods, then, you know, maybe more people would support Stannis. Um, but it also illustrates, you know, the failure of the feudalistic system, right? Because Stannis is legally the rightful king of Westeros, uh, but everyone ignores that because of, you know, PR. So the system doesn't work terribly well, does it? does it? Um, uh, cough, cough, Electoral College. Cough. Anyway, so they talk about the ships and they say that Stannis is going to deliver a whole bunch of letters all over Westeros because, again, like, no Twitter, you got to do things uh, uh, analog. So they're delivering these letters and they're going to nail them to the doors of every Septon Inn at every town for every man to read. And Davos points out that, well, a lot of people can't read, so sending these letters everywhere doesn't really help. So Stannis says, alright, we're going to get a whole bunch of knights to go and read the letters at the inns and the Septs and the temples. So, you know, I mean, it's just, isn't it just fucking crazy that, like, right now I'm talking to 150 people live on, an, on, a, on a global, interconnected, instantaneous information superhighway? Like, that is, that is so much easier than what Stannis has to go through just to get one pissy little tweet out about a little bit of incest. It's wild, isn't it? Because, of course, in our age, you know, truth and information is just is just so much easier to get out and everyone's so enlightened and 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 unified and and happy and and just social media it's just made everything better anyway um and yeah these are just the sorts of logistics that uh that that only that only uh the sh- the books bother to get into the show does not talk about um <laughs> does not talk about all these issues maximiliano in the chat uh, suggests that these letters could contain like a stick figure drawing of Cersei and Jamie fucking. Yeah, because that's a thing. Like, if um, if people can't read, maybe they should just try using pictograms. You know, um, there's a there's a really good SCP for those who are familiar with the SCP Foundation uh, about a monster that can only be communicated in uh, in pictograms. Words are too dangerous to use, so you have to use images. People forget the importance of pictures. Uh, they say they say a thousand words every picture, you know, and I think a a, a cartoon of of Jamie and Cersei having sex that would say a million words anyway. So uh, so yeah, they are literally sending a hundred knights uh, to go and go to the towns and inns and to read these letters because people can't read. It's crazy. Uh, and, uh, and, and Stannis even suggests that if you run out of letters to distribute, capture a few septons and force them to copy out more letters. Isn't that crazy? Like, man, human rights, what a, what a trip. Like, the idea that in this feudalistic system you can just capture a septon and force him to just 
copy out more letters as though he's just a machine right as though he's a servitor just turn just turn human bodies into tools to be used that's what Tywin Lannister said right every person is a tool that you can use for a purpose it's dehumanizing this system dehumanizes people and turns them into machines it is not good to turn men into machines it's not good to turn people into machines um and so uh they tell the maester to get to his writing maester pylos is going to have to write hundreds of letters and they're spreading the word of cersei's infamy and of stannis's claim and then the maester leaves and stannis sits down for some real talk with davos um and and Davos complains about the death of Cresson, and he's like, "What's what? I, I, Cresson was a good guy. He was a wise guy. Like it's fucked up that he died." And Stannis is like, eh, "It's not my fault that Cresson is dead. I didn't want him dead. I hoped that he'd get a few more years of comfort." And he grinds his teeth. And it's just so sad that, like, you know, in the prologue of this book, like we saw from Cresson's perspective how deeply Cresson loved Stannis and and the other Baratheon brothers. Cresson pained for paragraphs and paragraphs over how important Stannis was to him um and yet you know Stannis barely gives barely gives a sentence to mourn poor Cresson and it's just so sad that that Stannis doesn't appreciate Cresson more um but Davos tries to acknowledge his his wisdom and his importance um and uh Keltigar, Lord Keltigar said that Stannis's letter was admirable, but Stannis snorts and says that if I showed Keltigar the contents of my privy, he would declare that admirable as well. The lords just bob their heads up and down like a flock of geese. So Stannis is, you know, even the people who support Stannis, Stannis is dismissive of everybody. Stannis just hates everyone. Stannis doesn't like anyone. Not not his wife, not his people, not his lords. Stannis is, is a is a is a very inward facing person he's a very he's a very unpleasant guy um the the others take my lords stannis says and they may well because some of stannis's lords are up on the wall at this point maybe the others will take stannis's lords um maximiliano says that stannis likes davos a little bit yeah that's true but i mean you know only begrudgingly sometimes stannis does imprison davos in a few chapters you know so it's stannis's affection comes with strings attached but i guess that's how it goes with kings isn't it this series is kind of about that if nothing else the idea that kings uh have have complicated complicated obligations and 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 subtleties when it comes to their relationships um and stannis says that his words are true but davos says that they are blunt and strong and you have no proof so like even though stannis is is spreading the truth the truth isn't really worth all that much um in this world and uh stannis says that well you know there is one thing that might work as proof of my claim about the lannister incest and that's robert baratheon's bastard edric storm because edric is is a baratheon bastard and he has black hair the seed is strong uh, as john aaron probably mentioned to stannis at some point um and the fact that edric storm has black hair and the lannister bastards do not is another hint that the lannisters are indeed bastards um uh and uh but but again davos points out that well you know even if edric storm edric storm's black hair shows that shows that the seed is strong 
people can't see Edric Storm because we can't attach photos to, to tweets yet. Um, and so, again, that sort of informational logistical problem comes up. They can't just fax a picture of Edric Storm to everybody. It is a difficulty, Stannis thinks. Um, and Davos expresses concern about this whole Lord of Light thing that's included in the letter. He doesn't think that Reloric religion is going to help Stannis's claim. Um, but And so they start to talk about, you know, why... Why is Stannis turning to R'hllor? Why is Stannis turning to Melisandre? If Stannis is all about truth and duty, why is he abandoning his gods and why is he turning to this weird prophecy and shit? That seems very un-Stannis-y, doesn't it? Um, and, uh, and they sort of blather on about that for a while and they talk... And, and Stannis says that, look, I don't believe in the gods of the Seven anymore because the gods and the storm they they destroyed the ship that my parents were on because Stannis when he was young he he, he watched from his from his window as his as his family was was would died his parents died in a shipwreck um and so that's that good old fashioned problem of evil that that philosophers have pained over for millennia the idea that you know if the gods are all powerful and the gods are good why do the gods allow bad things to happen. Stannis decided that, well, the gods allowed something bad to happen, so I'm not going to worship the gods. Um, people say that justice and goodness comes from the gods, but but all the justice and goodness he sees is made by men. So he believes that good comes from human actions, not from divine intervention. Um, and so he doesn't even really believe in R'hllor. Uh, he, he just figures that Melisandre does seem to have some kind of power. Like, even if Melisandre doesn't have magic power, she has the power to inspire fear in people. She can influence people. And so for purely pragmatic reasons, Stannis is just saying, hey, like, I'm going to stick with Melisandre because she's going to help me win my throne, whether or not her gods are real. Stannis is taking a very atheistic sort of utilitarian, pragmatic view when it comes to religion. Um, uh, yeah, so, so she's a sorceress who can inspire dread in men. And perhaps she can do even more than that. And so then Stannis tells the story of a bird he had, an injured goshawk that he nursed to health, and he called her Proudwing. Uh, but she was not a very impressive bird. She didn't fly very high. Uh, meanwhile, Stannis's brother Robert had a had a falcon, a gur falcon called Thunderclap, um, uh, which 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 was named after his his farts. That's that's not funny. Um, and so they had these two different birds, and 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 Stannis was trying to be loyal to his bird, Proudwing, but Proudwing was just not that much of a good bird. And Stannis says that, look, I should have tried a different bird. Fuck Proudwing. Just because Proudwing was, you know, mine and my family, just because I was connected to Proudwing, wasn't working for me, so I need to try something else. And so St- Melisandre says that now I have another hawk. Now I have a red hawk. I never got any love. I never got anything good from my old strategies. I never got anything good from Proudwing, my old hawk. I'm I'm trying something different. I'm trying something magical. I'm trying something dangerous. I, he's taking a risk. He's, t- he's taking a leap of faith. I mean, not really faith, but... But he's 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 doing something different and dangerous to try and win the throne because that's how you get shit 
done for real in the real world, right? You need to take risks. Um, of course, that's also how you fail miserably. The worst things happen to people who take risks and stick their neck out, but also the greatest things happen to people who stick their neck out. So Stannis is rolling the dice, dice loaded with eldritch, magical, fiery power, and spoiler, it'll probably come up Snake Eyes. And Euron, he's also rolling those dice. Euron is also trying to connect to magical powers, and Bran is being imbued with magic, and Jon is going to be imbued with magic, and Daenerys is full of Targaryen dragony power. So A Clash of Kings is introducing all these magical forces. Game of Thrones was just introducing sort of the politics and the characters. This book is starting to inject a a a a real chonker, a real hefty hypodermic syringe is being injected right into the jugular, full of potent magic juice. And that is chapter 11 of A Clash of Kings. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Cock Abridged. It's been a while. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, and I think this is kind of how we want to run it. I didn't pay too much attention to the live stream, and I think that you know might be for the best. I think uh, this was the sort of hashtag quality content that, that y'all, y'all, y'all go for. So um, it was six months since the last episode, and I dare say it's going to be less than six months until the next one. Uh, we will do more of this. And remember, there is a podcast feed for A Cock Abridged, so there, go click the link in the description. Go and subscribe to the Alt Shrift X podcast. That's where you can get all of the future and past episodes of A Cock Abridged. Thank you all for joining in. Um, what other housekeeping is there to say? Uh, you know, subscribe and like and press the buttons. But most of all, thank you for participating. And uh, we're going to have more content coming up in the future. Uh, yeah. Cheers. Eat your veggies. G'day, Kata, Gladys, Halos Oyster. Thank you all for joining in. See you next time.